Good morning. We'll try that again. Good morning. I know you guys get tired of that, I'm sure, but we just want to make sure everybody's awake before we start preaching. Good to see everybody, and it's a pleasure to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm glad to be able to worship together as the body of Christ this Sunday morning. We'll be looking at a passage from the book of Philippians. We're continuing in our series on the book of Philippians, and this morning we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27, and we'll be reading through chapter 2, verse 4. Hear with me the word of the Lord. Paul writes, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then whether I come and see you or I only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. And therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask this morning that, once again, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive what you have for us today. Lord, we thank you that you feed us with your word. We ask that you would fill us up by your spirit this morning. Whatever you have to say to us, we pray that we would hear it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've talked about how, uh, as we go through this series, looking at the book of Philippians, that, that the overarching theme we want to keep looking at, that we want to keep in front of us, is this idea, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And we saw that last week in our passage from last week that Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so we want to keep that in mind every time, each week as we gather and are looking at our passages from Philippians. To live is Christ. What does that look like? What does that look like for us? What does that mean? How do we live this way? How do we live in a way that would uh, demonstrate that for us to live is is Christ. And so we're going to be looking at that. That's the framework as we look at this passage again this morning. Uh, There's a lot of things that Paul covers in this passage, and we won't be able to dig into all of it, but this is what we're going to be looking at. And specifically, what we see in this passage is that Paul is calling the church to unity for the gospel. Paul is calling the church to unity for the sake of the gospel. And that is one of the ways that we can live out this idea that to live is Christ by being united as the body of Christ. It's about us as a church. And that's what Paul is getting at this morning. I was trying to think about examples for unity, what, what would demonstrate unity to us. And one of the things that came to my mind was that I think uh, sports teams do a really good job of demonstrating unity or calling people to unity. It's one of the things that maybe we saw if anybody paid attention to the World Cup last fall, uh, that sports teams just, they call 
out unity from their fans. And sometimes we see this happen in silly ways. People dress uh, wearing the team colors. Uh, they wear the uniforms or they wear scarves or they wear whatever, whatever it might be. Oftentimes people dye their hair. I don't know if you've noticed that. People have mohawks with the colors of their teams in it. People paint their bodies and their faces to show that they are fans of a certain team. Somewhere in a box deep in my parents' basement, there is a picture of me with a green face, just completely painted green for uh, supporting my college's club hockey team. One of my friends was on that team. And so I went and I painted my face completely green to show that I am united with the fans. So this is things that we do. They buy all the gear. They travel long distances, just all in a show of unity. They are demonstrating something to the world. We are together. We are together. We belong to each other, the fans of this team. And so it demonstrates something to people. It shows the team that the fans are behind them, that they support them, that they are with them. It shows uh, the fans show each other that they are not alone in supporting this team, that there is strength in numbers. The fans show the opponents that they have something to reckon with. When you come up against my team, you better be ready. Even bad teams, there are shows of unity behind it. Sometimes that's what the fans unite behind, is how bad our team is, right? We see that happen a lot of times in sports too. So it's a show of strength. We are together. We are united. Now, of course, in what Paul's talking about here with the gospel, the stakes are much higher. But this is similar to what Paul is getting at in our passage today. He is calling the church to unity, maybe not using the same tactics, okay? But he is calling Christians to unity with each other, to be united for the gospel, to show one another that they're not in it together, I mean, by themselves, that they are in it together, right? And to show the outside world that this is something that they really believe, that we are in this together, and we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to be looking at and thinking about this morning. So far in Philippians, what we've seen is that Paul is writing to this church, this church that he loves, this church where he finds great joy in his relationship with them, and he's greeted them and he's shared his prayer for them. He's talked about his circumstances, that he is in prison, and this is what is going on with me. And now at verse 27 of chapter 1, it takes a turn in direction. This letter takes a turn in direction where Paul is now focused on the Philippians and in giving them instructions. In this idea of what it means to live for Christ, Paul is now going to give them some thoughts and ideas about what that looks like. We've already seen what this means for Paul, and it's the gospel. This is Paul's great priority, the advance of the gospel. He wants to see the gospel going forth into the world, people hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, that God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus Christ, his only son, into the world to die on the cross for their sins, that they might be forgiven, that they might be reunited in their relationship with God. And Paul thinks this is the most important thing that anyone can know. This has the uh, ability to transform the world and transform people's lives. And this is why he is so committed to this. So this is what Paul is about. This is what he has committed his entire life to. It's why he's traveled over much of the Roman Empire. Uh, he's been run out of town on several occasions. He has been shipwrecked. He has nearly lost his life. He has been thrown into prison. And even with all of these happening to, things happening to him, he still rejoices because he sees the gospel going forth into the world. And so he can take joy in that. People coming to know the living God through Jesus Christ. 
he sees the gospel still advancing. And now Paul turns his attention to the church in Philippi. And he says, this is what your lives are about too. You have a role to play in advancing the gospel because you now belong to Jesus Christ. This is part of our calling as the church. We don't exist purely for our own sake or for our own benefit as the church. Now, of course, our own individual spiritual growth and nurture is important. Our fellowship with one another is important. We don't want to neglect it. But that should always lead beyond itself for the benefits of others, to being for the good of the world or for the life of the world. Because the church exists for the life of the world. We want to know Christ, but we also want to make him known. I've always appreciated the image of Jesus being the fount of living water where we can go and be filled up. But we are filled up so that we can also be poured out for the sake of others and for the sake of the world. The denomination that that I am a part of, that I've been ordained in, we have what are known as the great ends of the church. And you can argue with these if you want, that's okay. But we have the great ends of the church. There's seven of them, which is a good biblical number. And it's meant to serve as sort of a, a mission statement for us, to keep us focused as a church. And the first great end of the church is the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. The proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. That is what our first great end is. And so as a minister in that denomination, that's always out in front of me and in front of us as churches, that this is what we are supposed to be about. We're not always perfect about following through on that, but that is what we are supposed to be about. The proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. That's our first one. Of course, all to the glory of God. But this is meant to be held in front of us, so we remember this. You know, one of God's great mysteries is that he has always chosen to work this way. He's always chosen to make himself known to the world through his people, imperfect though we are. We see this throughout the Old Testament with Israel, that God called Israel of all the peoples of the world and set them apart, but so that all of the nations of the world could be blessed through them, so that the Gentiles would come and know the living God through them. And we see this continued through the church. In the beginning of Acts, the risen Jesus is speaking to his disciples one last time before he is taken up into heaven. And he charges them saying this, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. You will be my witnesses. In other words, Jesus is saying, you, my followers, you will be the one the ones to tell the world about me and about God's great love for them in Jesus Christ. You will be the ones to tell them why I came and what I did and why it all matters. Paul also writes about this idea in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he says this, And God has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. This is what we are called to do as the church, to to advance the gospel, to preach Christ, to tell people that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them because they have been forgiven. 
Now, maybe this all goes without saying. It may be that this is a group that's gathered here this morning that would say, of course, of course this is the church's calling. We, we know this. That we know this is what we are supposed to be about. But I think there's always a risk in any church to lose sight of this as a part of our purpose. And I think history shows this to be true, that churches often go off course. Just as it's in our nature as human beings, because of sin, to become self-focused and self-centered even, this can also be the tendency of the church, because the church is made up of people. The church is made up of human beings. And so it's going to be prone to the same sins that are prone to each of us, or each of us is prone to. And so we need a reminder that our call is to look outward and to love the people of this world with the love of Jesus Christ. Because it's really easy for the church to turn inward on itself. We can become easily distracted and get worried about other things that aren't as important as sharing the gospel. So the Philippian church is a congregation that has this this outward-looking, gospel-oriented mindset. Uh, They have this understanding about themselves. They, They believe that this is part of their call to share the gospel with the world around them, in their cities and in their community. And we remember that Paul, at the very beginning of our letter, thanked them for their partnership in the gospel. So we know that this is true about them. This is something that they have been striving to do, to be faithful to do. But Paul writes this to encourage them because they have challenges that they are facing. He says a lot of the same challenges that he is dealing with are ones that they are dealing with too. They are also suffering for their faithfulness to God and to the gospel. And so these challenges uh, can impact their witness if they're not careful. The church is facing opposition from the outside, particularly by being a part of a culture that is unfriendly to the gospel. And we know that in history of the Roman Empire, that there were official persecutions that happened within the church. And these are starting to become more and more and increase and increase as this letter is being written. But they're also starting to face divisions inside the church. There are things that are pulling them apart within their community. And Paul addresses this more later in his letter. But this church has challenges. They have opponents from outside. They have divisions inside, the rivalries that have formed. And as we look at this as a church today, as we, as we look at the Philippian church, perhaps we can even see connections uh, with ourselves today. Uh, of being a church that exists in a culture that isn't necessarily friendly to the gospel. Uh, And I can't say with certainty for ICP that there have ever been divisions in this church within the community here, but I have been a part of churches where that has been the case. And we know that that can happen, that it can creep in, and divisions and rivalries can form within the body of Christ and pull people apart from each other. So all of this is coming into play as Paul is writing to them. And Paul instructs them, and his instructions are regarding how they might most effectively advance the gospel. What are some of the things that they can do to have a faithful witness in their city and in their community? And we should take note of what Paul has to say to them here, because it is just as relevant to our witness today as it was to them back then, these instructions. And so Paul starts by saying, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what Paul is speaking to here is the fact that how we live our lives is a part of our witness. How we live our lives is a part of our witness. There is no getting around it. 
If we are someone's introduction to the gospel, then it is quite likely that they would want to know if we actually believe what we are saying ourselves before they might move to it and say, I want to commit my life to this. Do you believe what you're telling me? I want to know that first before I'm going to check it out. They want to pay attention not just to what we say, but to what we do and how we live. They might want to see what sort of an impact the gospel has had on us, how our lives have been changed in the ways that we claim that it might change them. What difference has the gospel made in our lives? What difference has the gospel made in our lives? This is why we are to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, whatever happens. Has being a, putting our faith in Christ, has it led us to be more respectful and loving in our interpersonal relationships? Have we become more gracious and forgiving because of Christ's work in our lives? Do we conduct business with others with more honesty and integrity because of Jesus at work in our lives? Do we value the lives of the poorest and the weakest in society? because we believe that they also have been made in the image of God? Do we have a sense of joy and of hope and of peace that permeates our lives? Has the way that we spent our money changed or what we do with our bodies changed because of our faith in Jesus Christ? The gospel has implications for all of these things because the gospel makes a claim on our whole lives, everything about us, and it reorients our lives away from ourselves and towards the cross of Jesus Christ. We are to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And it's often when people see evidence of this sort of life change that the gospel becomes real to them because they can look and say, there is something different here, something good There is something authentic that I see in this person or in this community. There was a woman at our church uh, in Charlottesville, Virginia, back in the United States uh, that had been a part of this church for a long time. And her testimony, she loved to share her testimony about how she came to Jesus Christ. And she was a committed atheist for a long, long time. But she worked with a woman who was a Christian. And this woman that she worked with never, never touted it, didn't talk about it a whole lot. I'm not saying that's the way you should go about it, but it didn't make a big show of it but she conducted herself differently. And so this woman that we were friends with finally asked her, what is different about you? Why do you act so differently from everyone else? And that was the door for her to share the gospel with our friend. And because of that, this woman became a Christian and came to know Jesus Christ and became a faithful believer and one of the sort of foundational people in our church back home. This is the kind of impact that our lives can have with our witness if we allow it to, Jesus to change our lives in that way. This is what Jesus talks about when he says, let your light shine before others so that they might see your good deeds and give praise to your Father in heaven. Now that's not to say that God can't work in spite of us and thank God that he does work in spite of us because of our sinful selves. And if the spread of the gospel depends only on our perfect behavior, then we might as well all go right home right now. I know, I know, okay? We're all in trouble if God is relying on us purely for the gospel to be spread. But the point here is to say that how our, we live our lives has gospel implications. Even the way that we deal with the sin in our lives can be a part of our witness, Even the way that we deal with the sin of our lives can be a part of our witness. When we do something wrong, when our sin is obvious to others, 
Is there confession that comes with that? Is there apology? Is there repentance? A sense of turning away? Is there even a way that we speak to God's grace in our lives when our sin becomes clear around others? Or do we deny and justify ourselves when our sin is obvious? Or even with the sin of others, do we offer forgiveness? Do we seek restoration in those relationships? Or do we hold grudges and become embittered against them? So even our sin can be a way that we witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and knowing that we have been forgiven and we have received grace. All of these things matter for the gospel and for our witness in Jesus Christ. And I appreciate that Paul begins by saying this, that whatever happens, he starts the verse by saying, whatever happens. Now he's talking specifically about his circumstances here. He's in prison. He's facing a trial. He doesn't know if he's going to be able to come see them again or not. He's saying, whatever happens, you should live this way. But we can take what Paul means here and we can project it to the rest of our lives and say, truly, whatever happens in our lives, we should live this way worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because one of the realities of life is that we are not in control of our circumstances, whether we want to be or not. We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring any more than anyone else does. But whatever happens, whatever life brings to us, we are to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's an integrity in living this way that no matter what life throws at us, we are going to be faithful in this way. To continue faithfully in the middle of adversity only speaks more strongly to our convictions. And this is why the witness of the persecuted church over history is so powerful because there's little question as to whether they believe what they claim to or not. They show it by their actions. So at first, when you read this, uh, what Paul says here, it's easy to think, well, this is an instruction for individuals. As an individual person, I am supposed to conduct my life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there is truth to that. We should do that. But as we read further, we find that Paul has something bigger in mind here. And this is where we get to his appeal to unity. What Paul is getting at is the idea of a communal witness, the witness of the body, of the whole church. And Paul is calling them to unity. He says, look, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And if you are all doing that together, then I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Then I will know that you are united if you are living this way together. And he goes on just a few sentences later to say this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. I hope you hear in there all of the appeals to unity that Paul is throwing out there. One spirit, striving together as one, united with Christ, common sharing in the spirit, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul wants this church to be united for the gospel. And again, this matters. It matters for our communal witness within the body of Christ, that we have unity, that we are one, that we are like-minded, that we have the same love. 
This serves both as an encouragement to one another within the church that we are in this together, that we are not walking through this life of faith alone, but we have one another to strengthen each other, but it also serves as a sign to the outside world. Paul says, look, this is going to show your opponents that you are saved. As we talk about unity and Paul's appeal to unity, we know that this was also something that Jesus was concerned about for his followers as well before he was crucified. In John chapter 17, we have this great prayer of Jesus that he prays before his crucifixion. And he is praying for his disciples to be one. But he's also praying for those who will come to faith through them, after them. And we can include ourselves in here, the church today. Jesus is praying for us in John chapter 17. And I love that idea that Jesus prays for us, even now. And here's what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, his disciples. I pray also for those who, believe, who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This emphasis on unity comes not just from the Apostle Paul, but from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He desires to see his people be one, to be united, and he prays to that end. And again, I think that's so powerful that Jesus prayed this for us, that we might be united as the body of Christ. Because when we are united, we become a tangible representation of the oneness that Jesus shares with his heavenly Father. That's what he's praying here. And he prays that we may be one, even as they are one. He knew that this would be a powerful witness of God's love for the world. And even the fact that Jesus was sent here by him. So our unity as the body of Christ matters for the gospel. It's part of our witness. So the next question that I have is, what, what does that mean for us when God's church seems to be so divided? What does that mean for us when God's church seems to be so divided? There are so many different churches and congregations and denominations. Uh, the church has been splitting almost from the very beginning uh, as people have had differences with each other. And we see that even as we look around uh, this city, we can see so many different churches. And often as Christians, it's our tendency to look and say, well, this is why our church is better than that church. Maybe you don't do that. I do that sometimes. This is why our church is better than that church. Well, they have it wrong here, and we have it right. We are the ones with the pure theology and the pure worship and the pure practices, and the church becomes divided. And we're probably not going to solve all of those problems here this morning, the problems of the universal church, but I think as we think about Paul's appeal to unity, what we can do is start here in this church, in this congregation at ICP. Certainly, we should have a sense of generosity and charity towards other churches and other traditions, but here in this church, in this room, is where it begins, our sense of unity. And so I think there's two things for us to recognize as we talk about and think about unity. What does that mean for us here at ICP? How can we be united for the gospel? And the first thing is this, that 
Unity in the church is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Unity in the church is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is a gift. It doesn't just happen automatically. It's not just going to come about because we just wait for it to happen. We have to trust that the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to unite us as believers in Jesus Christ. Because we believe that when we come to faith, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, comes and lives inside us. This is uh, Jesus Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside us, it unites us with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us with Christ. And because the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ, then he unites all believers together in Jesus Christ. And so we see that unity is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so if we want to be united as the body of Christ, then it's something that we need to pray for. It's something that we need to pray for. It starts by getting on our knees and praying, Lord, would you make us united as a church? And then the second piece of the puzzle, at least for this morning, is that we are called to humble ourselves. If we're going to have any unity in this church, we have to humble ourselves. We're not going to get there any other way. I think humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. It's one of those things I saw that uh, one of the commentators I was looking at said that it's a uniquely Christian virtue, meaning not all traditions uh, respect it or necessarily value it. And I would even say one of the things I've come to realize is that I think even within the body of Christ as Christians, humility is something that we value more in other people than we do in ourselves. I really appreciate that that person is humble. I want people to think highly of me, but I appreciate that other people have humility. This is just one of the contradictions that we have because humility doesn't come to us naturally. It's not even always valued or appreciated as Christians in ourselves. It's difficult to come by. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the British uh, author, had a great quote or has a great quote about humility in his book, Mere Christianity. If we could pull that slide up, that would be great. But Lewis talks about what true humility looks like. And he says something uh, like this. Let's see if we can get that. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble person or a humble man, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's such a great picture of humility. Uh, Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Community Church in California, he says a similar thing. He says, real humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. We're just less focused on ourselves. That's what true humility looks like. Lewis goes on to say this, if anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And for Lewis, pride was the root of all of human sin. It was really the one that we had to get at. So humility being the corrective for that. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. <laughs> that is a powerful statement and, and true. And true. So how do we get humility? Well, I think, again, we have to get down on our knees and pray for it. 
Humility is difficult to come by, but it's a necessary ingredient for unity in the body of Christ. Because if we're all looking out for ourselves, if we're all trying to get what we want, if we're trying to build ourselves up, then it creates division and it destroys community. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's the old NIV translation of that. Another way to say it might be say, stop living as if you are the most important person in your own life. Stop living as if you are the most important person in your own life. Another thing I think uh, that we might say about practicing humility within the church is that we shouldn't make the idea abstract. I think it's very easy to say, that's a great word. I'm going to go and be humble from now on. I'm just going to care about the people, the needs of the other people, and that's what I'm going to do. And so we shouldn't abstract it that way. The word Paul uses here is, means one another, and it's a common phrase used in the New Testament to talk about people within the church. Paul is talking about the way that we are to interact with each other in the church. And so this makes the instruction more specific. You are to humble yourself with the person you're sitting next to right now. You are to humble yourself with the person that you're sitting next to right now, or the person sitting in front of you, or the person sitting behind you. You are to consider the needs of the person who you meet with in small group, or the person that you serve with on Sunday mornings and whatever ministry team that you're a part of. Maybe you even start by humbling yourself with the person that you're going to go home with today or the person that you are going to see tomorrow at work, the people that you spend the most time with. Start there, because that's going to be the hardest place to humble yourself. Don't abstract it. Make it specific. How can we be more humble with each other? This is what Paul is talking about. It's much easier to humble myself with a hypothetical person than the real person right in front of me. The best way that we can live all of this out, friends, is through our love for one another. Through our love for one another. In another place in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells his disciples this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. If we're worried about our witness in this world, then let's start by loving one another here in this place as the body of Christ. This uh, command that Jesus gives here is a good summary of what we've been talking about today. Christ has loved us. And so we should love each other with that same love, a love that's marked by humility, a love that brings unity. And when people see that we have this love for each other, It will be a witness to them that we belong to Christ, that we are united together because of him. Whenever we preach a passage that includes instructions on how to live our lives, I think there's always a tension. I'll say there's one for me. It's the same tension uh, that we get uh, whenever we preach through Paul and he gives us instructions on how to live. You don't want to shy away from the fact that there are instructions, there are expectations here, and that Paul really wants us to live this way, and that God even desires for us to live this way. But we might also walk away this morning carrying a burden that is too big for us. How can we possibly live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Isn't that the whole idea of grace? Isn't that the whole reason for the cross? 
because we are going to fall short of that goal, living a life worthy of the gospel. And yet we are still called to live this way as the church. And I think that this is the last thing Paul would want for us is to feel this burden because Paul's conviction is that the gospel brings freedom and it brings joy and it brings peace in our lives. And we can have confidence in that. And so I think we want to look to other places in Scripture that that balance this out. Paul grounds his appeal to live this way in the gospel itself, in looking to Christ and in what he has done for us. Don't forget that in chapter 1, when Paul first opens this letter, he says that he is confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul even says about himself in a couple more chapters, in chapter 3, that he himself isn't even there yet, that he's not perfect, but he is striving ahead because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Friends, you too have been claimed by Christ through his death on the cross, and you have been offered new life through his resurrection. Jesus Christ has made you his own. And so what Paul is calling us to here is to die to our old sinful selves and to be raised to new life in him and to live according to this new life. And it's by living in this new life, to live is Christ, that we will be given unity, we will be given humility, we will be given love and joy and peace. So seek him first and his kingdom and all of these things will be added to you as well. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, only you know. Only you know our hearts. You know them even better than we know them ourselves. Lord, you know all of the sin that is within us, all of the the pride that is within us, all of the things inside of us that divide us from one another. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be one in your Holy Spirit, that you might unite us here in this church, in this congregation, And that our unity might be a witness to this world of the great love that you have for them in Jesus Christ, your son. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.